Comics. Movies. Music. Video games. Technology. Blu-ray. Television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. You're listening to the Whedonverse Podcast. A retrospective, spoiler-free podcast where we discuss the movies, series, comics, and games created or inspired by Joss Whedon. With your hosts, Mr. Universe. Number Do the dance of joy. And the clairvoyant. Well, you're right about this being a bad idea. Also brought to you by the Tangent Bound Network. This episode, we'll discuss the idea behind the podcast, introduce you to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and discuss the unaired pilot. Hello there, gentle listeners. You caught me catching up on an old favorite. I'm Mr. Universe, and this is a first episode of a little tale I like to call the Whedonverse Podcast. Drop the Storyteller Act? Yeah, I'm gonna drop the Storyteller Act. But I know what you're thinking. But Universe, that's such an unoriginal name for a podcast. And you'd be right. But it beats my previous idea of the podcast about things that Joss Whedon made that I tend to obsess over a lot more than the average casual viewer podcast to podcast. Or the Pachewutuma Tutuakvapachewa for short. But that is what it's about. If you look around online, there's lots of great podcasts about the shows and universes that Joss Whedon's written for, directed, produced, and created. Firefly, Angel, there's even a podcast dissection of those four episodes of Roseanne, probably. However, try as I might, I couldn't find a podcast about all the things that Joss has worked on. So I decided to make my own. In this podcast, we'll work through the Whedonverse in the intended chronological viewing order from Buffy to S.H.I.E.L.D. with Whedon-y movies, games, and comics sprinkled in along the way. And we'll keep you in the loop on every crossover, reference, bit of trivia, or behind-the-scenes action that we can throw at you. Bear in mind, there are many different definitions of what the Whedonverse is or might be. For the purposes of this cast, the Whedonverse, noun, is defined as follows. Anything that we think people want to hear about that Joss is involved with. More specifically, we'll discuss the TV series he's created, films he's directed, and large chunks of the universes he's involved with, including the extended Buffyverse, the Fireflyverse, and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Mutant Enemy, Bellwether, Marvel, it'll all show up here at one point or another. By now, you may have noticed that Joss Sweden's very near and dear to my heart. He lives in my lungs. But that's because he reminds me of my brother, who was very tragically killed in a drunk driving accident. Or rather, he would have been if some good Samaritan asshole hadn't pushed him out of my way. In all seriousness, though, it was my brother who force-fed me my first few spoonfuls of Whedon soup. As the biggest Whedon nerd I know, he'll be joining me later in the episode as this podcast co-conspirator, the clairvoyant. We actually got our start in broadcasting together with a local late-night radio show called Everything Shiny that we ran for two sleepy years. He'll be my regular co-host on this program. 
Now, by the time I had watched my first Whedon project, I'll admit that I'd been actively avoiding him for some time, and I was lagging a bit behind the band candy wagon. Giving in to the clairvoyance urgings, I had tried to watch the first season of Buffy with my ex, who turned out to be a slugoth demon, and for whatever reason, I just couldn't get into it. Probably because, as you'll soon learn, season one just wasn't my favorite. It wasn't until a couple months later, when we were shopping around at a video store, yes, those existed once, when I came across Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog. I thought it looked interesting, and as a comic book geek, I had it mentally marked as a maybe for rent. However, when the video store announced they were closing, and old slugs still couldn't decide on a movie, I impatiently grabbed it off the shelf, took it through checkout, and that's where the magic began. You'd think you know how the story goes. I fell in love with Joss immediately and devoured all his works on Fast Forward in the span of 48 hours. It may come as a shock to you, but that's not quite how it happened. Enjoying what I saw, but still iffy to watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I decided to give Dollhouse a try first. This is where I found that I actually somehow enjoyed watching characters I love suffer painful and hideous deaths, or worse, while cracking wise the whole time. It was time to try Buffy once again. The thing that immediately drew me to Buffy was surprisingly not its sexy 90s clothes or hair, but the quirky dialogue and the feminist nature. I found that this was a show that worded things in a certain way, made jokes with the same strange speech patterns that I had started to use when I was younger, not realizing where it originated. Kind of like a crunchy Joss exterior with an oblivious caramel center. This type of speech pattern has since been labeled Buffyisms, Buffy speak, or Whedon speak, but no matter what you call it, we all know where it began. This show is also a very important statement for feminism and the power of women. And if you can find me a badass female character stronger than Buffy Summers, you win a stubborn denial and some pody lips. I have many powerful women in my life, and since they're still often being misrepresented in media today, it's refreshing to see an older show that writes women so well. One thing that is very important to us for this podcast is to keep it spoiler-free. Sort of. Many retrospective podcasts like to jump around, and I don't think that's very fair for viewers who haven't completed the entire series yet. We will talk about each episode in depth, from beginning to end. However, we solemnly promise that we'll try not to spoil anything from later on in the season or later on in the Whedonverse. So expect spoilers, but only of things that have happened within the shows up to that specific point. That way, even brand new fans of Buffy or of Joss can watch along and strap on their podcast seatbelts at any time and not be worried about spoiling future events for themselves. On this podcast, we also plan to feature guests from several other ongoing or completed Joss casts or podcasts out there, so definitely keep an eye out for some of your favorites. We have some big damn greats that have already slotted to appear at some point, and we're always looking to feature new Whedon podcasters or reviewers. If you'd like to suggest a guest host, or if you'd like to guest host yourself, drop us a line at Whedoncast on Twitter, facebook.com slash Podcast, or send us an email at WhedonversePodcast at gmail.com. We'd also love to hear any feedback, corrections, or suggestions any of you might have. Don't forget to check out and give some love to the Tangent Bound Network at tangentboundnetwork.com and the HHWLOD Network at hhwlod.com. Both of these networks have been extremely supportive, and this podcast wouldn't be here without them. But I digress, gentle listeners. To start off this show, we're going to jump one step ahead in the Whedonverse. The logical place to start would be the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie, but what's logical about a teenage vampire slayer anyway? 
We'll circle back around to the movie when we have a season's worth of contrasts and comparisons under our collective S.H.I.E.L.D. commissioned belts. To start us off, please enjoy as we discuss a creature that was never meant to see the light of day, the unaired television pilot of Buffy, Slayer of Vampires, only on the Whedonverse podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at at Whedoncast. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Podcast, or review, rate, and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. The Whedonverse Podcast is brought to you by the HHW LOD Network. You can find them at hhwlod.com, on Twitter at hhwlod underscore network, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash hhwlod. The Tangent Bound Network can be found at tangentboundnetwork.com, on Twitter at tangentboundpc, and on Facebook at tangentboundnetwork. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Season 1, Episode 0, Unaired Pilot, written and directed by Joss Whedon, filmed May 3rd, 1996. All right, the unaired Buffy pilot. We're here now, joined by the clairvoyant. Hello. And uh, he's gonna he's gonna help us talk about the Buffy pilot, uh, which is not strictly canon. Uh, it's a little bit different. Yeah, some things happen in this pilot that uh, contradict other things that happen in the series. And there's also a few a few casting changes, which we'll touch upon later, uh, that you know some actors were recast for the show itself, and some, interestingly enough, uh, were not, despite having very minor roles in the episode itself. Yeah, very strange. And uh, to make this canon, I guess we'll say that it took place in an alternate universe. Yeah, where the high school in Sunnydale is Berryman instead of Sunnydale High. That's correct. So, yeah, we start off with the episode, some creepy piano music outside of Berryman High School. Uh, And then we go inside, and there's kind of a cool sweeping shot, really good directing for a pilot. Uh, Sweeping shot over the science lab, uh, probably because of the spooky lab skeleton. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree. I thought the cinematography, uh, that was the first thing I noticed. That's actually really nice looking for a... Uh, you know, an almost black and white uh, 90s pilot. Yeah, and it's uh, this calm, serene moment is broken, literally, by a fist through glass uh, because two young students break on into the into the high school and the the young boy is acting pretty suspicious. He says that he used to go to the school and the girl's a bit scared but he's kind of the bad kid leading her on this this crazy date. Yeah, and the one thing that I found a little interesting is the girl is 24-year-old uh, Julie Benz back in the day. Yeah. Uh, you might recognize her from Dexter, among other shows. She was on uh, one of the Saw movies, I believe Saw 5. And so it's weird seeing her so young. I almost didn't even recognize her, to be honest. But, uh, yeah, the boy and the girl, they... They go through 
kind of sexual tension, but also tension, tension, because it's a creepy school at night. And they end up in the theater where the boy actually opens up a pit. He works some controls, opens up a pit, and nearly kills her, which he thinks is funny, and I'm mortified yeah. by that. I agree. That would I don't know what's with his sense of humor. And uh, that was... That would be... I would, I would want out immediately. And the funny thing is, she says, that's not funny, I could have died. And he says, I would have caught you. But he was all the way by the controls, uh, and there's no way he could have caught her. Yeah, that, so that was interesting. And, yeah, so continuing on with the boy being suspicious and the girl being nervous, uh, and they start to make out pretty much immediately after that. <laughs> As you know, teenagers are known to do in situations such as this. And they make out until the girl kind of hears a creepy little noise. And uh, she gets kind of worried. But the boy's not scared, and he's acting increasingly suspicious, making awkward jokes about scary things, and staring at her neck the whole time. So you're seeing some common traits here uh, of this suspicious-looking boy. Yeah. It's a, uh, I mean... And without spoiling anything, it's a it's a common vampire trope. Uh, I mean, this this boy is clearly a vampire. But uh, he keeps acting increasingly suspicious, uh, and he says nobody's here. The girl says, "You sure?" He says, "I'm sure." Okay. And she turns around. She's got full on vamp face, and she dives right at his neck. And I love this because it's a complete subversion of of the typical vampire trope. I agree. Yeah, I actually th- I thought the scene was very underrated. Uh, I mean, it makes its way into the episode itself, the actual first episode. And I've always thought the scene was very underrated because the original idea behind Buffy the Vampire Slayer, if we're going back to you know before the series, the script of the original movie was based on two concepts: uh, the kind of Rhonda the Immortal Waitress idea that you know a, a regular girl with supernatural abilities, and the other really big one. Uh, which Joss later visited in Cabin in the Woods, which I'm sure we'll touch upon further down the line in this podcast. Yeah. Uh, the idea of just taking common, overused horror tropes and just completely turning them on their heads. You know, blonde girl goes into the alley with a monster and she kicks its ass. And I thought this was a perfect example of that right here. I completely agree. Uh, but now, clairvoyant, for a second, let's talk about the vampire makeup. Uh, which we grow to get used to. <laughs> it you it it definitely does grow on you. It's a it's not the best, uh, but I will say that it is better than. I mean, later in in the spinoff series of Buffy Angel, they do experiment, and it's better than it will be. <laughs> but it's also worse than it will be, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's kind of it's. It has room for improvement, and it does improve. Uh, I think it's interesting to the vampire lore. I don't think it was ever done before, where the vampire has a different face that they wear for vamping out. Yeah, I think this is the first time that I can think of that, you know, usually they just, oh, they have sharp teeth, but they still look beautiful, and they still look the same, but their teeth are sharper. But no, this, they have this scary demonic face that i haven't seen you know i mean it's it's not the original vampire lore they kind of they played with the rules a bit but it's it's definitely an interesting take on it 
And I think also partially it's for TV convenience. Uh, so you, you know, in a fight scene or something like that, you have a better idea of who's the vampire and who's not. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so we're at human kill count number one, but this doesn't count uh, towards the rest of the series because it's not canon. So alternate universe kill count one. Yeah. Uh, and immediately after that, we go to the title card, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, with some sick rancid gems. Yeah, I noticed that immediately. I also noticed the lack of a theme song because, of course, it was not picked up for a series yet. So it's just the title card, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But uh, yeah, if you're a fan of Rancid, back in the 90s, 96, that's what was playing at Berryman High School. Uh, and we meet Buffy, who's blowing an enormous bubble. Enormous. Yeah, I wonder how many takes that took just to get the bubble that big. But, I mean... Uh, Buffy's 19-year-old Sarah Michelle Gellar, um, I mean, she's a, if I remember correctly, she's a valley girl herself, so blowing big bubbles is part of her stereotypical... <laughs> it's part of her daily life. Exactly. Um, but she seems a bit lost, like she doesn't know where to go, we'll soon find out why, and one thing I immediately noticed, actually, Sarah Michelle Gellar has brown hair in the pilot. She's a brunette. Yeah. Which is her natural color, but as everybody knows, in the series, Buffy's a blonde. Yeah, so that, that, I mean, she's not a natural blonde in the series, because, of course, uh, in the series, Buffy's mom and other members of her family are all brunette, and you can see her roots at times, but yeah, in the pilot, she's just, she doesn't, she doesn't dye at all, doesn't bleach, just straight brunette. Yeah, this is where we meet Sarah Michelle Gellar for the first time. But though you will definitely not be the last time. Uh, and she's from oh, all sorts of things. She's in the Scooby-Doo movies, uh, the Grudge movies, Cruel Intentions. Uh, she was in Ringer pretty recently. And even more recently, she was in The Crazy Ones with Robin Williams, which was recently canceled as well. So she's she's got some TV and film work under her belt. I but. think this was the start of that, though. I believe this was – she was – I mean, she's 19. She's young. She's – probably fresh out of school and i think i don't i oh no i guess she was a she did she was a child actress was she not i'm not sure it's very possible i believe she was on a uh, a sitcom or a or a soap opera or something long before this and she won some awards for that well next up buffy goes into the school we cut right to it where she's with uh, Principal Flutie, who's played by Stephen Toblowski, who's not Principal Flutie from the series. Yeah, that was interesting. Uh, I had to actually look that up immediately, because as soon as I saw it, I started thinking, I don't think that's Ken Lerner, but I had to look it up, and yeah, no, it was it was a completely different actor, who I found acted it very strange in comparison to Ken Lerner. He seemed very just rattling off his lines. Uh, he had a weird trait of constantly forgetting Buffy's very unusual name. He calls her Bunny the first time we see her. Um, but he's, yeah, Stephen Toblowski is actually known for Groundhog Day, Ned Ryerson. He was the, the smarmy, kind of creepy high school friend real estate agent. But one thing that he says to Buffy makes me laugh, so I had to write it down. He says, simple rules, no gang colors, no fur, and no hanging from rafters screaming meat is murder on Sloppy Joe Day. That was very popular last month and I had to put my foot down. <laughs> and that makes me laugh. 
Like, I can't even imagine. But if any high school would do it, I guess Sunnydale. Yeah. Or Berryman well, High School. Berryman, exactly. And um, this pilot was written and directed by Joss Whedon himself. And you can definitely see a lot of his humor coming through in this episode, which I thought was great. Yeah, and then immediately after that, uh, I wrote down Betty. So he calls her Bunny, then he calls her Betty. She corrects him this time, and they mention some incidents that are old school. They don't directly touch on it, and I think that was a nice throwback to the movie. People that watched the movie and then would go on to see the series. And so we'll, we're going to talk about the movie in a little bit, and so we'll come back to what happened to the movie. But I like that they, they referenced it. Yeah, I thought that was a cool throwback. Uh, I feel it was more of a throwback to the script of the movie. Uh, Joss uh, is pretty well known for not <laughs> enjoying anything about the movie itself. So I feel that was, uh, you know, more of a throwback to his original script. Which, I mean, though it does happen in the movie itself as well. But I like to think that it was him calling back to his own work and not the works of Kaz and Fran Rubel Kazooie. Um, yeah, Buffy's assures the principal she's here to learn well have fun have fun and learn and have fun with learning and then we cut to uh xander with a skateboard which is something that shows up in the first few episodes and then never again uh he's a main character obviously and nicholas brendan who plays xander he's done a little bit of tv before this but mostly he was a handyman he was a jack of all trades around the set and he Xander, interestingly enough, is one of the oldest members of the cast. Uh, Nicholas Brendan was 25 at the time, so he's been out of high school for some time now. Uh, but he still he still looks young, and he definitely his attitude goes a long way into that. Yeah, and he's done a little bit of TV and film since Buffy. Uh, most notably, he's been doing Criminal Minds for the past seven, eight years now. At the time of this recording, and uh, he. Crouches up on his front. Is that 90s speak? Crouches up? <laughs> I don't remember. He he comes up on his friend Willow, who's played by Riff Regan, who you may recognize as not the Willow we know from the series at all. Which we'll touch upon later. Yeah, 21-year-old Riff Regan, not known for a whole lot. Uh, note that it is not the, the British punk journalist Riff Regan. Uh, it is both a female... And an actress, so. But they have a little conversation about, basically, I think the reason for the conversation is to show Xander's not good at school, Willow is good at school. Yeah, and the first thing I noticed about this scene actually uh, was not the fact that your beloved Allison Hannigan was missing and replaced with Riff Regan, but that the character Jesse, who is in the actual first episode is nowhere to be seen. In fact, Jesse McNally does not appear in the pilot at all. It's true. I, I noticed that as well. Um, and one thing is, and I think this goes a part of the ways to why Riff Regan was replaced. She doesn't seem like a comedic actress. Um, Nicholas Brendan seems so comfortable in his lines and rattling off the funny things. And Riff Regan seems like she doesn't have comedic timing. And she's more used to serious roles, I think. I yeah, I found, I noticed with a lot of Joss shows, uh, particularly the earlier years of Buffy, it has like a beat, like a comedic beat, and there's a very 
it's almost like the, some directors, other do, directors do this as well. Is you know, it has like a groove that you got in, get into, and it looks like she was struggling to find that. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, and as they go off, uh, Cordy walks past Cordelia, who I don't believe is named in the pilot. I think she might be. I can't. I wasn't paying close enough attention actually. But uh, right off the bat, she immediately. Uh, lets us know her status as the mean girl as she makes fun of Willow right off the bat. Uh, and Charisma Carpenter, Carpenter, rather, who plays Cordelia, I she brings that, it's, I hate to say it, it's kind of cheesy, but she does bring a charisma to the role. <laughs> um, because she's just really good at playing a mean girl, but kind of a tough mean girl. Like, you don't want to mess with her. She's lovable. Just Cordelia is such a great character. And Chris yeah. Carpenter is also on Charmed, Lion Game, Veronica Mars. Most recently, she's been on the Expendables movies. And she's just fantastic at playing the, the tough girl. And she's actually older than Nicholas Brendan. She's, she was almost 26 at the time of filming this. Wow. But uh, she, even now, doesn't look a day over 25. She looks the same. So that's interesting. Uh, one thing that I found amusing is that uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar was actually one of the original choices for Cordelia. I believe she was to the point of possibly even being cast before Buffy dropped out, and then they chose her for that. And Charisma was one of the choices that they're looking at for Buffy. So it was almost like they swapped roles. Yeah, in a in a sense, yes. And yeah. we also see Cordelia's friends, uh, Harmony, and a assorted unnamed cordette cordette being kind of follower of cordelia it's a it's a whedonism yeah and uh harmony what's interesting mercedes mcnab uh you know a canadian which is nice she's actually 16 she's probably the only person in this entire pilot that was in high school during the time they were filming this at a high school yeah and she's uh she was a child actress she was on adam's family values uh, and she's been on the Hatchet horror movies, but she hasn't done a whole lot, not in the past about three years or so, but she's, she gets by. What <laughs> struck me about this scene is that uh, both Harmony and the unnamed Cordelia follower do appear later in the series, Harmony extensively and the follower in one or two episodes, but they, even from the pilot, they return for the series while some other actors, you know, the uh, principal Flutie and Willow were replaced. So that was very, uh, that's unusual to get, you know, unnamed extras to return for the show itself. Yeah, I, and that's great. That's really, like, I've never seen that done before, and I really like that. Um, a guy immediately comes up to Cordelia and her friends, unnamed jock, asks, hey, are you going to the bronze tonight? Not with you. Great line. <laughs> it really cements... Cordelia's personality as the not just the mean girl but that swoons over boys but the mean girl that's mean to everybody yeah because he's wearing a football jacket he's you know he's he looks to be popular and she turns him down like that I feel he was too short for her and that's why (laughs) she that's the only thing I remember about that character he was very short Uh, one thing that I laughed at they're talking about the bronze which you kind of get the sense. It's, we know from later in the series it's a nightclub in Sunnydale for teenagers. But you kind of get the sense at this point that it is. 
just by the way they talk about it. And they mentioned that Dingo's Ate My Baby is playing, which is a... It's weird, because Dingo's Ate My Baby becomes such a big thing in later seasons. It's weird to hear it mentioned so early on, even though it's kind of a crass joke, the name of the band. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, that struck me. I can't remember if it's in the actual first episode or not, but the fact that they name-dropped this band that, you know, later becomes well-known. We hear a lot of this band, and, I mean, without going too much into it, one of the band members is a main character of the show. So the fact that they mentioned it this early on, I wonder if they knew that they were going that direction with the band, or if they just kind of were reviewing past episodes, and like, hey, this is something we could do. I think that might be it. Just because it was in the pilot, nobody was supposed to see it. So they kind of just stole the name again. Reused the joke. But this scene after this is a bit confusing. And I I think is in the writing as opposed to the acting. Probably a bit of both. But it, I had a hard time telling if Cordelia's insulting the people that are walking around or complimenting them. Yeah, I wasn't sure. And then Xander shows up and pretends he's part of the group, I suppose. <laughs> And uh, she burns them bad. He has a great line, uh, check back tomorrow, I'll have that devastating comeback ready. And they leave. And he immediately bumps into Buffy, who he directs her to the library, which is where she's headed, introduces himself, and uh, actually checks her out as she walks away. But one thing that I thought was strange, he said, he picks up her stake that she dropped out of her purse and says, you forgot your stake? But if that was me... I don't think that's a common, you know, I wouldn't think it's a steak. I would think it's something else. Yeah, I would say, you know, your wooden stick. Or, what I think is strange is that the fact that it happened to slip out of her purse at all. Yeah. I don't know how it fell and why it made no noise when it did so. But it's a pilot. We'll let it slide. What I thought was cool about this whole little collection of scenes uh, is this Xander was kind of like our eyes and he just weaved in and out of every conversation like it's we see xander and willow xander and cordelia xander and buffy and it's just we're following him and it was actually a great way to introduce a lot of the main characters just through this other character yeah i didn't think of it that way that's a really good observation uh and after that we go to the library which is crazy fancy and nothing like the library we're used to yeah, it looked like a redressed set of the bronze, actually. Uh, and Buffy bumps into Giles, who uh, gets really way too excited. He And I love Anthony Stewart Head so much. And watching his face, just watching like the awe set in and then get really excited, he does it perfectly. And Anthony Stewart Head's known... He was known for stage at first. He's really known for Rocky Horror. He played Dr. Frankenfurter. Yeah, which is... I... I'd say I'd love to see it, but I have seen it and I didn't love it. it <laughs> it's just wrong to see Giles that way. What I thought uh, was, uh, it, when I was researching this, one thing that was a little strange to me is that he was 42 at the time of filming this pilot. Wow. I would put him in his 30s, uh, but he's, no, he's, I mean, he's 60 now because this, this show was 18 years ago, <laughs> which is crazy. And he's, yeah, he was 42 when they filmed this. But uh, Yeah, he's also known for some, he was known in British TV and a few commercials, 
before, uh, you know, U.S. commercials, before he was spotted and brought on as Giles. And right now he's on Merlin, actually, as uh, the king, I believe. But he has a couple CDs out. He's a really great musician. And, and you may know him as... Uh, people might be watching him. I, I recognize him. Uh, he's in the cult classic Repo, the genetic opera. And he's also the president on... Or is it rather the prime minister on Little Britain. It's very true. Uh, so he gets really excited, as we mentioned, and he says, I know what you're looking for. He jumps the gun, and he brings out a big book that says Vampire, a big leather-bound book. Uh, creeps Buffy out a lot, and he seems really confused, like he might have got the wrong girl. Yeah, he even says, oh, my mistake. But as... she leaves... Yeah, and then he starts looking for the books that she was actually after, and she's already gone. Which I think kind of confirmed his suspicion. Yeah. He's like, okay, maybe it was the right girl, and I don't know what's going on. But she left lightning fast. She was already out the door, basically. And uh, we cut to a little montage of Buffy being upset in class. <laughs> and after class, Willow introduces herself. Uh, she mentions the teacher's name, Mr. Bond, which may be a reference, and that she's supposed to help Buffy out, catch up. And this is how Buffy and Willem meet. And one thing I noted, that the line delivery by Riff Regan was so painfully awkward in this scene. Yeah, like I said, it feels like she was... She didn't have a beat down, or she was trying... Didn't have the beat of the dialogue down. And <laughs> she was trying to deliver it you know it's almost like all the other characters fell into this groove and she's trying to and she's trying to deliver it the same kind of tone the same sense and everything she said sounded like it was it belonged in a different tv show yeah and so buffy makes chit chat with willow for a bit and she asks about giles where we find out he was the former curator of a british museum now i don't know if that's canon i can't remember i don't think it is I don't think it's important either way. Um, but Cordelia immediately steals Buffy away with another Cordette. And Willow looks a little upset. Yeah, she just... Buffy just left with Cordelia. I don't even remember if she said goodbye or anything. Cordelia just sweeps her up and starts talking about her shoes. And she just walks away with them and says, okay. And uh, we cut to the locker room. Uh, where Aphrodisia, a cordet, is making fun of the name Buffy. And that just makes me laugh every time, because her name is Aphrodisia. Yeah, this this particular scene actually has a lot of weird names in it. Uh, I mean, Joss Whedon is known for having weird names, if you look at the names from his other projects. But the two characters that are speaking in the scene are Aura and Aphrodisia. Interestingly enough, they also both return for the series. And... They're talk they mention another girl or boy named by the name of Blue. So yeah. And they're all making fun of the name Buffy, which is amusing. And they I wrote down unintelligible nineties popular girl speak, because I could not make heads or tails of their conversation. <laughs> it was nothing. Yeah. I caught the name Blue, and that's about it. Um one thing I also want to mention this locker room appears to be the shower area for the gym. Uh, you see girls in the background in towels. But in the background of one shot, you can see a metal grate, and on the other side of it, the hallway. 
I didn't notice that. And that's just concerning to me. That's <laughs> that mean like it was probably just filmed the way the set was built, I'm sure, or filmed or something like that. It was bad. That's not good. You can't have a hallway with the window to the little girls' locker room. Yeah. And then as they're talking, uh Aura opens up her locker and a body falls out of it. The which actually earlier. made me jump. <laughs> I'm really? not gonna lie. Even though I had seen this before and I knew it happened, and there's nothing there to make you jump. Ow, maybe her abrupt scream. But That's... one thing I didn't realize, despite having seen this episode and the first episode several times, is that that's actually the the boy from the start of the episode. Yep. The one that the currently unnamed vampire girl killed. Stuffed him in a locker. I didn't. <laughs> How'd she get the keys to the locker? I don't know, but I completely... That slipped by me. Even though... Because I, I found myself thinking, how would a body get into the locker? When was he killed? All the stuff. And then it clicked. Oh, wow. That's obvious. Uh, so Xander meets up with Buffy after this. He makes a joke about the stake. He says that he uh, has worked out that she's building a really little fence. And uh, she says it's for self-defense, which is a... A weird lie. And he seems completely unfazed by that as well. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. And one thing I point I noticed that I want to point out is he says that it's uh, pretty mellow in Sunnydale. Sunnydale. Yeah. Well, first uh-huh. off, he says it's Sunnydale, which is, you know, we know that's the name of the town now, where Berryman is. But, no, it's not mellow, unless he's not noticing everything going around, which is very possible because nobody else seems to yeah so a lot of terrible things happen in sunnydale on a daily basis uh and no one ever seems to notice and i think they've actually they called attention and even hinted at some theories as to why that happens throughout the series as well yeah uh so buffy and xander are walking by pointing out clicks and comparing comparing them to the ones back in la where buffy's from uh, one that makes me laugh is the Dirty Girls, which are girls that have very strong views on hygiene. That's also the name of an episode later on in the series. Oh, yeah, it is. That's right. I hope that's not what it's referencing. <laughs> but one thing that I laughed is they uh, point out the film club, and they said that every movie is a take on Freudian sexuality. And Buffy says, even Muppets take Manhattan? And Xander says, especially Muppets take Manhattan. Yeah, that was great. And they're, I like their overacting, making fun of the drama club. Yeah, that was also a lot of fun. It really just shows the chemistry between the main cast. Yeah, which is definitely, when it comes to, I mean, Sarah and Nick, it's definitely there. <laughs> you just, you watch it and you feel like you want to hang out with them. Like, they would be good friends. But um, one thing that makes me laugh Someone says, I'm sure it was natural causes. The boy just crawled up in a locker and died of old age. And I didn't write down who exactly said that. I think it was Cordelia. But yeah, I was going to say, I think it's when Cordelia and her Cordettes accost Buffy and Xander. And yeah, the... Because Willow approaches them. Yes. And uh, explains there was a body in the locker. Then Cordelia confirms the news. By uh, popping over Willow's shoulder. And so Buffy runs off and meets up with 
Stephen Tudlowski talked. Tudlowski. The, the the not Ken Lerner principal Flutie. He calls her uh, in this scene. I wrote down. He calls her Bambi, Barbie, Betty, and Wilma. <laughs> yeah, uh, and he apologizes <laughs> for a body in the locker and says this was not the welcoming party he would have planned. But he also uh, he utters probably my favorite line in the pilot. You probably got that thing like when you burp and you get that vomity taste in your mouth. <laughs> yeah, which is very much Joss Whedon dialogue, and. It's one of the only things in this episode that legitimately made me laugh out loud. One thing I really like as well, he says, we very seldom, and then he corrects himself, we almost never have body stuffed in the locker, which implies that this does happen more often than it should. Yeah. Uh, So uh, Buffy asks to inspect the body. Surprisingly, the principal is very cool with this and lets her. She's the new kid, and he doesn't want her to make, he doesn't want to make her feel ill at ease so <laughs> anything she wants goes uh, she sees the bite marks on the body and she pouts because she has to deal with it I thought that was a very interesting reaction cause I mean you don't I mean aside from the title Buffy the Vampire Slayer and those who have seen the movie you don't really know at this point what's the deal with Buffy you get little hints here and there but you don't for sure know and then she sees the bite marks and you think there's a, a, a series of reactions she should be going through, and she just pouts, like, really? And so I thought that was interesting. So after this, Buffy goes and she uh, confronts Giles in the library. He seems unfazed as well. And they mention you know, that she's the Slayer, which is the first instance of the word Slayer. And he mentions that he's a Watcher, and you kind of get a little bit of the lore of Slayers. He gives her the speech... Yeah, this was very, very expository. Um, it, it's the part of the pilot where if things weren't clicking for you, everything's going to start making sense right here. Yeah, and she says, you know, I don't care about all this. I don't want to do it. He says, then why are you here? And she responds with the gray line to tell you I don't care. And I told you, so bye. And then she does a flip off the staircase. Yeah, I thought... That was strange. Her very nonchalant, like handspring off of the railing to the to the floor below, and we don't know at this point that slayers have you know super strength or super acrobatic abilities. So just to see her do that <laughs> was a little confusing. Yeah, and uh, Giles doesn't understand her attitude towards all this, and mentions some of the things that we may see later in the series: you know, werewolves. Zombies, ghouls, incubi, succubi. Because Buffy at this point thinks vampires are the only thing she has to deal with. Yeah, because she's from L.A. and she doesn't really deal with the you know, the Hellmouth, which Sunnydale is, um, as evidenced by the actual first title of the first episode, Welcome to the Hellmouth. And he has one line... I mean, I, I love the Watcher speech, the, you know, one girl in all the world... You know, I love that, but I also really like his line, everything you, it's something along the lines of everything you feared was beneath your bed, but you said to yourself couldn't be by the light of the day. Something along those lines. Yeah. They're all true. And I thought that was great because right there, they're setting up in just a pilot, a universe, you know, they're setting up, it's 
she could fight anything in the next episode. Yeah. So I thought that was, you know, as someone who's attempted to write pilots, one of the most important things you have to do is to make people want to keep watching. You have to make people guessing what's next, and that's a great way to do it. I definitely agree. I wrote that line down as well because I said I just loved it. It's one of my favorites, probably in the series. It's such a good line. But, uh, yeah, he mentions Watcher, and we do imply that Buffy's last Watcher had passed away. It's implied. It's never straight up said. And uh, one thing that I noticed at this point, it had been a couple times now, but I noticed it explicitly here, Buffy has used the word lush as 90s slang to mean good quite a few times. Yeah, yeah, she said, she says that having abilities that other teenagers don't have was lush, and that's, I don't think they ever use that in the actual series itself. Maybe, we'll see. But she does also mention that her grades are the suck because of it, which is a, it's very Joss Whedon. You can always tell which episodes he wrote because he's got a very distinct dialogue. Yeah. But uh, this is where Buffy kind of established that she just wants to be like everybody else. Which is a very common theme throughout the series. And then Xander is conveniently, I believe, in the library at a stack of books overhearing all of this, which confused me a little bit because (laughs) it seems very out of character for him to be in the library. But then again, he might have just saw Buffy go in there and he's like, ooh, I want to check out the new girl. Yeah. Um, It seemed very convenient. (laughs) It was. But we cut to the bronze, uh, outside the bronze, with uh, Buffy in line behind a young extra who we will later come to know as Jonathan. Uh, he's wearing glasses, which he doesn't wear in the series, but he's played by Danny Strong, who's he's acted a little bit. He was in Gilmore Girls, but he's most notably known for writing and winning a lot of writing awards. He wrote the new Hunger Games Mockingjay movie. He wrote The Butler, Game Change, Recount. He's won a ton of awards for writing. Yeah, and he was just a he was a kid. He was twenty one, filming this. Him with glasses was interesting to see. <laughs> but he did have a line, which was good. He wasn't named yet, but he did have a line as early as the pilot. And we can hear playing what presumably is Dingo's Ate My Babies, but is actually the Stone Temple Pilots, uh, who are supposedly a terrible band. <laughs> but Stone Temple Pilots don't sound half bad. So. <laughs> Uh, Xander shows up, makes small talk with Buffy, and they talk about how Willow was off campus with a mystery guy. Which Which just happened out of nowhere. Yeah, it's not shown, it's just mentioned. And Buffy's pretty concerned by this. Uh, Xander tells her that the outfit, he's a pretty pale guy, he had a pretty outdated outfit, very Lionel Richie. And And I found uh, that was something very different from the show. Um, The fact that Buffy uses outdated clothes as a way to determine if this man is a vampire yeah. which in the show that is not i mean you can tell there's there's very few ways to tell and outdated clothes is not among them because even there's a deleted scene earlier in this pilot um where we meet another vampire who's not wearing outdated clothes and so I don't know if that was just they removed it for inconsistency sake or because it'd be ridiculous seeing people walking around in like Victorian era garb uh, you know, for the older vampires. But it definitely was 
one of the most short-lived parts of the series. Yeah, definitely. But, Clairvon, I want to ask you uh, what you thought of all this, because Xander doesn't catch on why she's asking all these strange questions, though he just overheard that she's a vampire slayer, that there are vampires, all this kind of stuff. Well, what I think is kind of weird is the whole time, from start to finish of the episode, Xander and Willow seem completely unbothered by this. Yeah. Like, so, I don't know, maybe it's a repressed thing. They do live in Sunnydale, and weird things happen, and they're just not used to them happening to them. But, yeah, they... They don't seem too bothered by any of this, to be honest. Definitely not. Um, and one thing I noticed, as they walk past a sports sign also in the background, Bulls, the Berryman Bulls, is a sports team, which is also very different from the show. I can't even remember what it is in the show. It's the Sunnydale Razorbacks. That's right. Uh, but Willow's on a date with a guy. He's acting pretty suspicious and saying suspicious things. He turns around and he's a vampire, which is not a surprise, not a subversion of the trope like in the beginning, but pretty much what was expected. In the script, it it just calls him blonde guy. It just says blonde guy. But I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly, I watched it last night, and I think he was brunette. So Yeah. That's you know, very... The character's name is blonde guy. That's kind of funny. Um, so... Willow's getting pretty concerned on her date. Then he's a vampire. Uh, they hear the scream. So Buffy is running and Xander is chasing behind her. One thing I thought was interesting, and it's also just the Slayer strength thing, Xander's very out of breath and Buffy's not. And Yeah, I didn't notice that actually, but that makes sense because Slayer strength, Slayer stamina, uh, etc. So Willow screams and they fall to the theater. One thing I thought was really great is Xander deciding to go to the back. He's kind of got a battle plan in his mind, even though he's never done anything like this before. And I thought, probably just the way it was written, but I thought it was cool for the character. Yeah, and um, she's, Buffy is one of her snarky, making small talk with the vampire uh, line, as she usually does, uh, about how, you know, he's all a, a lonely vampire all alone in the night or something like that. And, and I like that also. You got me all wrong. I'm not alone. And then a bunch of other vampires emerge. And I liked... She's like, oh, please attack me, you know, one at a time. And he says, you watch too many movies. And she says, you can never watch too many movies. Yeah, one thing I thought was kind of interesting is this date that this guy took Willow on is in the school theater. Which... Yeah. Is that the only place vampires attack students? Yeah, I found myself... Well, I feel that even just showing the theater and the trap door and all that in the the very beginning of the episode, I don't believe that happens in the pilot. I believe that seems a lot more condensed. And they did that just because they wanted it to be almost foreshadowing for this scene. Yeah. And I liked... Uh, one of my favorite lines in this episode is when Buffy gets thrown and she said, that was my favorite spine. Yeah. Um, and I think it's great stunt work for a pilot. Really yeah. good. Uh, Xander and Willow are attempting to escape throughout all of this. Uh, they use a cross that they found in Buffy's purse, which Willow believes is Xander's purse. <laughs> One thing I also noted down here, Willow got bit pretty hard by the vampire, and for quite some time, since 
from when Buffy heard the scream to when she got there. But she's completely fine. Yeah, she... I think at one point in the episode, she, like, holds her neck, like, ow, that hurt. But aside from that, like, she doesn't seem too bad. And what was interesting is she presses the cross to the face of the female vampire that we see at the start of the episode and either kills her or seriously disfigures her. I'm going to say that she was dusted. Um, And there was another dusting earlier in the episode as well, uh, not long before that. So that's Vampire Dust Count 2 now. Yeah, and the dusting was (laughs) some interesting special effects, very low-budget. It seemed like claymation. It seemed like... It was very slow. <laughs> yeah. It seemed like they like covered a guy up with sand, and then they got him to move, and then they put the sand on the ground. Yeah, and it was weird wipe effects, and everything was really slow. But what I thought was strange was when they presumably dusted the female vampire, because, I mean, she actually, in the series itself is a pretty major part. Not in Buffy so much, but she... I mean, that is a that is a, a recurring character that we do get to know pretty well. Yeah. And so the fact that she was originally just in the pilot supposed to die was unusual. And further proves that this is non-canon. Yeah. And so Buffy dispatches, dispatches our vamps and announces that she is the Slayer. Which is a really cool line. Really cool. Like, who are you? I'm the Slayer. It was just... It was written to be in an action movie. And then they get scared. And they run away. The vampires, most of them, run away. And um, I think one says... <laughs> I may have misheard, but it sounds like one says to the remaining vampire who doesn't run, I'll, I'll call you. <laughs> I, I'm not sure. I couldn't make out what he said either. But, uh, yeah, vampire tackles Buffy right through the stage. And I know it's her first day. And she's already destroyed the theater of the school. Like, yeah. all the sets for a, presumably a play that they're putting on, and everything's wrecked first day because of her. This is a habit she has. <laughs> yeah. But um, there's another subversion of a trope, but it's almost more obvious this time. They fall through the trap door, and the vampire comes out and grabs Xander by the foot. Who or seems, by the arm. once again, completely unfazed by any of this. Yeah. As this vampire is, like, dragging him to a pit, he just has a completely blank look on his face. But uh, the vampire says, hold that thought, and gets dragged back down in. There's some really cheesy sound effects. There's, like, cymbals yeah. crashing and wood clacking together. I was surprised I didn't hear, like, a cow mooing and stuff like that. It was it was pretty pretty cheesy. I was expecting a cat meow, and I was really disappointed there wasn't one. But uh, that's Vamp Dust Count number three for the pilot. And uh, then Buffy climbs out, and Xander just calmly asks her, so what does the Slayer do? <laughs> yeah. And that's when we see Willow holding her neck. Yeah. Uh, and I think we would, then we go to the next morning. Yeah, and we see the film club is putting up a poster for Nosferatu, which made me laugh. Yeah. And they're hanging out, and Giles approaches on a unimpressed largely with Buffy uh, part, partly because of her sloppy performance in taking out those vamps and the fact that now there are two people who know she's the vampire slayer which is supposed to be a secret though I've always questioned as to why exactly that's a, I mean 
I could see in a superhero sense, you know, you you don't want the people you love to be in danger. But right. if they can hold their own, then yeah, I would want a team of vampire hunters around me. Definitely. And uh, Giles has a line that reminds me of Harry Potter, actually. He says, if Buffy came a minute later, you'd be dead. Or worse. Which, I know Harry Potter came out a few years after this. It was very reminiscent of Hermione to me. Which is kind of funny because she's also English. (laughs) And, yeah, at this point, Giles is berating Buffy. She's unbothered. Her friends are defending her. Her Her new pals. Cordelia and uh, Harmony walk past and pretty much say that can't believe we were almost nice to her. You know, we're not <laughs> friends with that one. She found her nerd group. And then we end with Buffy throwing a stake at the Nosferatu poster. Right after she says, the world's in beauty hands. <laughs> in beauty hands, yeah. Uh, and it, it, the whole thing reminded me very, like, the earth is doomed. Like it. <laughs> yeah, so uh, that sets up the series. And I think for a pilot... It really captured everything the series is. It's got action. It's got Joss jokes. It's got, you know, it's got the punches. It's got the funnies. But it's also, you know, sets up the universe. It sets up all of her relationships with all the main characters. Yeah. And Gail Berman, who uh, now she, I think she's a Fox executive, but at the time she was working with Sand Dollar Entertainment, who had produced the Buffy movie. And she was the one who approached Joss and said... Do you want to do a series of your movie that failed horribly? <laughs> and his first thought, he said, that went through his head is a theme. The theme that ends up actually being the show for the first three seasons or so. High school is hell, or high school as a horror movie. Yeah. And I find this pilot, that's, you know, that's the theme of this pilot, that's the theme of the show. High school as a horror movie. And so, you know, it really, it captured that well. Yeah, and, and um, so I have a question for you, Mister Universe. Sure. If you were an executive working for the WB, uh, it's mid-season. You know, it's January. Savannah was just canceled, and you need a show to replace it mid-season. This pilot comes across your desk. Would you pass it on as a series? I think I think I would pick it up. I think I would um, because it has potential. It's not fantastic, but it has potential to be a good series, which. Whoever made that decision made the right decision. I think if I was in that situation, if it was me in that situation, this is like the kind of quirky stuff I love. I would pick it up based on my own personal preference. But i really actually surprised that a network executive did pick it up because it seems like something that, you know, it's, it's, it's the geek culture, you know? Like, it's like, wow, this is what... This is, it's a very. It seems like it'd be a very niche audience, and I personally, I'd pick it up based on what I like. But I wouldn't expect it to be as popular as it ended up being. Yeah, definitely. I definitely agree with you. Now, Joss didn't want this released. Uh, he had an interview with the IGN Film Force, where they asked him if it'll ever be a special feature, and he said, "Not while there's strength in my bones." Uh, he also says that it sucks on ass, and. Of course, his fans respected his wishes, and it's really hard to find this pilot uh, anywhere. Isn't that right? Uh, I found it on YouTube. <laughs> uh, it's everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere. It's on YouTube. It's on Vimeo, Vio. Any video sharing site you can think of has this pilot 
Joss didn't want it released, so it's everywhere. Yeah, and it's honestly, I don't know why he doesn't want it released. It's, I don't find it particularly weaker than the first episode. Or the uh, first it, season? Yeah, and it did, like, it sets up for the series. Um, I mean, they, they cut out, the first season deals heavily with, you know, the master, which we'll get into, and he wasn't in here at all, but... I found that it would be a little convoluted if we were to put him in the pilot. And I want to go back and talk about, there was a deleted scene here where Buffy meets a mysterious stranger on the way to the bronze. Yeah. Um, who was played by 26-year-old David Boreanaz. Um, so why do you think that that was cut from the pilot? The, we'll, we'll go through, let's see. What happens is Buffy is going to the bronze which is, you know, the cool, the cool, the only cool place in Sunnydale to hang out. Uh, then this mysterious stranger, played by David Boreanaz, stops her. And he warns her that they're living on a hellmouth, that Sunnydale is a hellmouth. And then he gives her a cross, and she's kind of confused. And then they go to the bronze. So why do you think that that scene didn't make the cut? Uh, for time. Probably it doesn't explain much else other than stuff we already knew, uh, so I think it was cut for time with the expectation to put it back in in the first episode. That very well could be, and I think also it, it's it's confusing. Yeah. And it it makes you ask questions that I mean, pilots are supposed to make you ask questions, but this is one of those ones that, like, it almost felt assumptive that it was getting a series. Like, ask questions that are kind of the wrong questions. You're like, you know, you're supposed to be asking what's coming next, not what's going on, so... <laughs> That's fair. Uh, now, let's go back and talk about Willow, Riff Regan, and why do you think that she... Stephen Toblowski, I have no idea why he wasn't picked up. I think it was just contractual. But Riff Regan, I think I have a pretty good idea on why they recast and the networks didn't want her. So what was your take on that? I know a lot of people instantly are going to say because she is heavier than the Willow we know and love, and I don't think that's it at all. I thought she could have been a great Willow, uh, but she just didn't seem to fit the show, didn't seem to fit the character, and she was... I don't know, it's, it felt like she was the one who struggled the most to try and deliver her lines the way they were supposed to be delivered. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, Joss is a big proponent for casting bigger women. He's really feminist, and he really, you know, believes in having all body types. But that's why he had Riff. But her acting didn't seem to fit in with everybody else's. I agree. Um, and one of the reasons they ended up casting Allison is because of the way she delivered lines versus the way Riff did. Because one thing I noticed when Riff was on the date, or Riff's Willow, she makes a joke that, you know, I don't do this very often because nobody ever asks me. And she says it so sadly. And Alison Hannigan does it so upbeat. Alison Hannigan's Willow is not down on herself. She's really happy about everything. And she would say, because nobody ever asks me. And she wouldn't be, you know, upset with herself. She wouldn't be down about it. She'd be happy yeah. that she's going now. Yeah. Yeah, she uh, she definitely played the character very differently than... Like, Riff Regan was what they were looking for, and Alison Hannigan was what they didn't know they wanted. 
And she, yeah, she definitely, she did it, like, she surprised them with her portrayal, like, making character decisions as, like, that's an interesting delivery of the line, but, you know, it fits so well. And so I think that's why Alison Hannigan ended up being cast. And, I mean, she's roughly, she's a year older than Riff. They're, she, you know, they're all fit in the same, you know, it's not like she was too young, too old. And, yeah, so I think that's probably why Allison was picked, because she wasn't what they are looking for, but was what they wanted. <laughs> I agree. So I think it's time. Out of five stakes, what would you give this episode to Clairvoyant? I would give it... 2.5, I think. That's exactly what I put as well. So it looks like from the Whedonverse podcast, the unaired Buffy pilot gets 2.5 out of 5 stakes. It's a it's a 50%. It's not the worst. It could be better, but it sets up for an amazing series. Yeah, and it, I, I mean, it's definitely it's not a weak pilot as far as pilots go. It's a weak episode as far as the show goes, but as far as the pilot goes, it's, I mean, it's got action, it's got humor. Uh, I mean, it has everything you need to know about the series. And so while it wasn't a perfect episode, it did everything it was supposed to do and more. So, yeah, I would say 2.5 is very fair. Whedonverse podcast rating, 2.5 out of 5 stakes. Join us next episode where we'll discuss Buffy the Vampire Slayer Season 1, Episode 1, Welcome to the Hellmouth, and Episode 2, The Harvest. wait until next week in the meantime check out it's all connected a podcast about the marvel cinematic universe on hhwlod.com all programs productions characters music and stories discussed in this non-profit podcast belong to joss whedon and or their respective networks all music clips and discussion used is either original royalty free or released under creative commons designation cc by ncsa For more information, visit creativecommons.org. Thanks for listening.